Hey, everyone. I'm going to try just really, really hard to get to the point for this episode. Cut past all the nattering and yammering and BS that quite often just bumbles out of my mouth at the beginning of these episodes. Uh, for, I think, this episode, even more than the other ones, and I feel that all the episodes I've done have been great and very important. I think this one might be the most important, and very much more so than the other ones focused on one topic, whereas the other ones really touch into all sorts of different issues to, to varying degrees. But this one is just one topic. So I don't want to keep rambling on and on and on and on with my crap. So I might then send people running to the hills. Because I, I think this is an important uh, public service message in its own right. So this episode is on... Uh, the fact that the virus is airborne and aerosol transmission, which hasn't got enough public conversation and, and attention. And as is shown in this episode, uh, is pushed down uh, overtly. So my guest is Professor Jose Luis Jimenez. He is a professor of chemistry at University of Colorado Boulder. Well, here's our conversation on COVID being airborne. Cheers, guys. All right. Well, first, uh, thanks for, for doing this. I really do appreciate it. And, uh, you know, taking up your Saturday. But uh, to start off, can you just go over uh, the basics of what uh, is going on with, with aerosol transmission and what that specifically entails and, and why uh, anybody listening to this should, uh, uh, you know, take this very seriously. Okay. Um, well, thanks for having me. Um, aerosol transmission is, we believe, is the main way this virus is transmitted. So that's why anyone should care, because if you want to try to avoid getting infected or try to get your family or your coworkers or your friends uh, to avoid infection, you need to understand how we get infected. And basically, it's, it's simple. Uh, when we talk, when we breathe, when we shout, when we yell, when we when we cough, we expel an invisible smoke, um, which is, is what an aerosol is. And it's basically little balls of sal saliva and respiratory fluid that may contain the virus if you're infected and that float in the air like cigarette smoke. They don't go very far. They don't fall to the ground like these larger droplets that WHO and CDC talk about. But they just float in the air. And then we get infected when we inhale those um, that invisible smoke that someone infected has exhaled, especially in two situations. One is when we talk uh, to someone very close, because then you are inhaling a lot of the air that they are exhaling. For example, that situation, if you talk to someone who has eaten garlic and you smell the garlic on their breath, is because you are inhaling the air that's that they are exhaling without much dilution. So that's a very dangerous situation. And that is why there is a lot of uh, transmission in, in close proximity when you talk to someone very close. And the other situation is when you share the air of a room. Kind of like uh, if you talk to a smoker, you know, you would always uh, have breathe more smoke. But if there is a smoker in the room and both of you are there for an hour or for two hours, the smoke is going to fill the room over time and you're going to breathe it in and then you may get infected. And that's what happens in a lot of the super spreading events like the choir case that we studied or the restaurant in China or many others that have been in the news. Okay. 
Um, so what you, you mentioned, uh, the CDC, WHO, what were these organizations saying early on uh, about uh, airborne transmission? Well, <clears throat> very early on, it wasn't clear and there were mixed messages coming out. And um, uh, so Dr. Tedros, the head of WHO, I believe is on February 6th, he said that coronavirus is airborne. And as we know, uh, President, former President Trump also too, told Bob Woodward in an interview that you get it in by breathing it in. So, um, so there were, you know, certainly there was the impression that it was airborne early on, but um, then that changed. And on February 28th, WHO came out with a big announcement that is very clear in big bold letters. It is a fact that this virus is not airborne. And, and they said even more, to say that it is airborne is misinformation. And they were asking for the public's help to help fight this misinformation. And they said the virus is transmitted in two ways. It's through surfaces. We touch a surface and then we touch the interior of our eyes, our nose, or our mouth, and we get infected that way. Or through, through these large, what they call the droplets, which are basically also balls of um, saliva and respiratory fluid that come out of us as well, like the aerosols. But the difference is they are much bigger. And because they are much bigger, they fly through the air like a projectile, and then they may hit you in the eye, they may hit you in the small exposed area of the nostrils, or they may hit you inside the mouth, and then they can get you infected. But if they don't hit you, then they, they fly like a cannonball, and they fall to the ground, right? So, so those two were the things that, that they have told us they were the most important. And to this day, both CDC and WHO still say that these droplets is what's important. And the problem is that's completely wrong. And, and this has done a lot of damage. You know, we have spent billions and billions of dollars disinfecting surfaces, and now we know there is zero cases that have been confirmed of transmission through surfaces, and all that effort has been misplaced. And we have also, you know, we since we were defending against these projectiles that are easier to defend, so you just need to keep your distance, we haven't really understood how to how how masks should be worn or, or some of the control measures have not been applied. And this has really done a lot of damage in controlling the pandemic. I mean, if you think about this virus, it's not so transmissible. You know, each person on average gives it to two and a half people. I mean, with the original version, now we have variants that are more transmissible. So we would only need to cut transmission to 40% of, of what would happen without any control measures. And then this R number is below one, so each person gives it to less than one person, and we, we can control the pandemic. But we have not been able to keep the transmission at 40% or as if we did nothing. And that has been because we have basically spent a lot of effort doing things that do nothing or do very little. And the things that really work that are not that difficult, we haven't done or we have done very poorly. So you, you mentioned uh, that, that they were um, trying to get the, the idea across that anything contrary to what they were putting out was, was misinformation on, on the matter of it being airborne. Um, at, at what point, and you, and you said presently that they're still trying to focus on, on large droplets. Um, so at, at what point did or have they uh, changed their messaging where it wasn't misinformation but just a matter of lesser significance? 
Um, so this has been evolving gradually. Um, so it was March 28th, as I said, where they said to say that the virus goes through the air is misinformation. Then on, on July 6th, I, I wrote and signed with two, 238 other scientists a letter that we sent to WHO, where we were uh, arguing that uh, um, that airborne transmission was important. And a few days later, in July 9th, they published a report where they no longer said it was misinformation, but they make it sound, so they, they use words like, well, there are theories and hypotheses that maybe aerosols could, could matter and it could be possible, but, but we don't know and there is no evidence. And so they go from saying it's just this is just impossible to saying, well, it's possible, but it's just unlikely. And, you know, and therefore it's not something we should spend much effort fighting because it's something that's unlikely. Right. And at the time, we had already studied, for example, the choir case, but they dismissed the case saying, oh, this could be the droplets or the surfaces, which is completely wrong. And they knew it and we had told them. But, but um, there was this very entrenched resistance. Now, later in the year, I mean, as more and more evidence accumulates that really is not being transmitted through surfaces and is really going through the air. In November, um, Maria Van Kerhoven, Maria Neira, that are two people very high up at WHO, they both said in, in press conferences and, and a video that ventilation was very important. You know, so they said, oh, ventilation is very important and you should ventilate, you know, have six air changes per hour and all of this. But they didn't say a word of why it was important. You know, so but if you think about it, if the virus is in the surface, it doesn't care that you open a window or not. It's going to stay there. And if the virus is in a projectile, it doesn't care if the window is open or closed. It's flying in a projectile, in like a microspit. So the only reason ventilation is very important is if the virus is in the air floating like smoke. And if you open the window, the smoke goes outside. You know, so, so already in November, kind of they knew, but they refused to say it clearly. And to this day, we are kind of still in the same situation. They haven't said they haven't said clearly that it goes through the air and that the air is the main way of transmission. And I'm talking about the WHO. The CDC is a slightly different story, but at the end, they, they end up in the same situation. They have been saying that ventilation is important and things like that, but they don't explain why. And they keep talking about these droplets, um, and that's just incorrect. So do you have any idea why? Because it's... It you know, from from somebody uh, just looking in on this situation, it's it's bizarre, and mm -hmm. it, actually very bizarre. Um, so why might they uh, be engaging in this this sort of messaging and, and on on multiple fronts? Like, why are they having this strange aversion to um, really presenting uh, the uh, the airborne factor uh, out front and center, which is also going to aid people with with uh, mask use and ventilation, et cetera, et cetera. But also, like, why is there the, this adamancy to keep pushing really, really hard? The the like, it's important to to clean surfaces and wash your hands, but it's it's almost like this this acute obsession that that's being put forth of the you know, that, that that's the most paramount thing you can do um so why are they um engaging in this sort of messaging well uh, so that's a great question and um, it has two answers one is historical and the other one is practical 
So let me explain a little bit. And I have to say, I, I didn't work in this field. I work on aerosols, and and I know a lot about that, and, and basically everything else, but not the disease transmission. And I got involved around February, March, when it was clear the pandemic was was not going to be controlled, and started to work with some of the world experts on this field. And um, I was equally perplexed. You know, you, you, what you just said is what I was saying. Then it's like, why why are they so resistant? It seems. It seems relatively clear that it's going through the air. What I have learned in the, in, in the months in between, and we actually have written a paper on this history that we are about to, to submit, is that there is basically a denial of airborne transmission possibly being important that goes back to 1910. So, I mean, through the history of humanity, you know, humans have thought diseases go through the air. And this started with the Greeks. Actually, Hippocrates was the one who said, you know, diseases go through the air. And, and there was a miasma theory. And, and this was something that was very frightening and very disabling, because if, if it can come through the air, what could you do? You cannot defend you, yourself against it. And then in, in the 1850s and 60s, Pasteur in France and Koch in Germany kind of demonstrate germ theory that basically to get sick, a germ has to enter your body and then it can replicate. And that's how, how infectious diseases work. But there is still the question that is that germ coming through the air, through water, through food? And in 1910, uh, Charles Chapin, who's an um, American public health researcher, and he had created a new hospital in Rhode Island, he writes a book where he basically reviews all the studies that had been carried out about how diseases were transmitted, how infectious diseases were transmitted. And he, he conceptualizes what's called contact, contact infection. The idea that people get infected when they are close to each other in this close proximity situation, right? And, and the germs go from one person to the other, and they are not going through the air, especially not in, you know, there were, in, in, there were people had the impression that, for example, the flu could leave uh, Boston and then cross the Atlantic and infect someone in England. There was kind of like this idea they would go through the air in this phantasmagorical way, right? And he says, no, 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 it's being close to someone when there is contact, and that's how you get infected. And in the book, he says that the problem he's having in his new hospital is that because people still believe that they get infected through the air, they don't pay attention and they don't protect themselves from this contact infection. So then he, he says in the book, we don't really know if diseases go through the air because, I mean, they didn't have the technology to measure aerosols in 1910, and they just couldn't do the measurements. So then, but he turns this absence of evidence into evidence of absence. And he, he starts saying, it's very unlikely that diseases go through the air, and therefore we can discard it as a hypothesis. And if someone wants to demonstrate that a disease go through, goes through the air, then they really need to, to meet an incredible burden of proof because, because it's very unlikely. And this paradigm of contact infection being basically the main way we get infected becomes dominant. He was successful. I mean, he, you know, social distance works. There was a lot of good things he, he promoted, but uh, he becomes too successful for his own good. And this becomes a dogma. We call it the, the dogma of the droplets. And um, it has become dominant in public health and infectious disease control till this pandemic. Basically, during, during the 20th century, there are researchers that, that um, start to work trying to demonstrate that another uh, disease that goes through the air in particular tuberculosis. So William Wells at Harvard, starting in the 1930s, starts working on this, but he's ridiculed. 
he's uh, he's told that uh, he's trying to bring back miasmas. And for example, Alexander Langmuir, who was the the first head of the CDC, basically ridicules Wells, and, and he says in the 1950s that basically Wells had failed in demonstrating that any disease whatsoever could go through the air. So there was this entrenched belief for decades that no disease could possibly go through the air. They they do continue studying it because because they do believe humans can make bacteriological weapons that do go through the air, you know. So, but uh, but natural diseases do not go through the air. And then you know we start to develop vaccines and antibiotics and whatever. And just these questions of transmission have never been prominent really. Again, until now, until we had a disease that we had no immunity and that was transmitting like crazy, right? And suddenly the scientific community has really poured to study this this problem. But on April 3rd, for example, we talked to WHO. So a few days after um, that March 28th announcement, Lydia Moraska, who's a scientist in Australia, she uh, gathers a group of scientists, including me, uh, from different fields, different countries, and then she contacts WHO and very quickly. We talked to them on April 3rd, but uh, we encountered that they they are all Japanistas. You know, they all follow this doctrine of Japan that basically airborne transmission is, is, is kind of crazy that we are suggesting it. And um, and it's something very, very unlikely. And w- what's our evidence? They keep asking, what's, what's your evidence? And then we say, well, we have this, these pieces of evidence. And then they say, that's nowhere near enough. And, and we responded to WHO. But you have even less evidence for transmission through the surfaces and transmission through the large droplets. But however, even though you have even less evidence, you are telling everybody that this virus goes through the surfaces and goes through the large droplets. And they say, well, but that's something we know. You know, So there's kind of the comebacks to this history and this error. Um, and basically, they didn't listen to us. And they, I mean, we continued uh, talking to them and we exchanged letters, but it was clear that we were not going to get anywhere. And we told them, you know, like, you should, in the case that you don't know, it may go through the air, and that has important implications, we should adopt what's called the precautionary principle. We should assume that it goes through the air and take those precautions. And then, you know, that better safe than sorry, another way to say it, right? But uh, but they, they refuse to do that, and to this day, they refuse to say it clearly. And in many, many countries where I will give interviews or whatever, they are still disinfecting everything, and they are not doing anything about ventilation or about doing things outdoors or things that at the end are not that difficult to do, but but because there is no emphasis and people don't think the virus is in the air, they don't do much. Anyway, so that's the historical reason. They are really entrenched in this dogma. And because for a century they have believed that aerosols were not important, uh, they have not studied them, right? And the best example is like there is a committee at WHO that is the committee that decides how the disease is transmitted. In that committee, there is zero aerosol experts, but there is six hand washing experts. Why is that? You know, and, and that continues to this day. Well, because they, as, as I said, they think it's very, very difficult that a disease goes through the air, so you don't need those experts because that's so unlikely. Uh, however, you know, it's very likely that diseases go through surfaces, so you need a lot of hand washing experts. And the first thing we, they told us is that we need to do all this hand washing, which is a good idea. But um, but it's not the only thing, right? Um, so anyway, so there is that that um, that problem. And it, as I was saying, it's not that just the specific people that are WHO. It's the whole scientific field 
of public health and infectious diseases. I mean, it, it has been changing through this year, but still the people who hold power at uh, WHO, at CDC, and at, at the ministries of health of on almost every country are all from the same school that believe that transmission through the air is, is very, very unlikely. You know, and they, and they tell us things like, for example, they will say, we know COVID-19 is not, uh, is not airborne, it's not going through the air, because it's much less contagious than measles, right? So then there is, and that's one of the things that they, uh, they argue and they feel is a very convincing argument, and it's, it's bogus in, in several ways. One is measles, as late as 1985, they were still telling us it was a droplet surface disease, just like they are telling us with COVID-19. Even though it's much more contagious, from 1910 to 1985, they still called it a droplet surface disease because it was transmitted better when in close proximity and all that. So they thought it was contact infection. And, you know, so, so they kind of say, now, if it was like measles, we would recognize it. But these same professions took 75 years to recognize it. So it's not like these things are not obvious. And the other thing is this, the measles is more contagious than COVID-19, but tuberculosis is less contagious than COVID-19, and it's airborne. The only way you can get tuberculosis is by breathing it in. You know, so, so the fact that measles is more contagious than COVID doesn't mean anything in this regard. Anyway, so that was a long explanation of kind of the historical reason. Then there is the kind of the practical reason that um, when we talked to WHO, they also told us, you know, what happens, you know, if it's airborne, then you need N95s, and there are not enough N95s to go around, and especially for the poorer countries, um, you know, and, and this uh, fear of scarcity. And in the U.S., you know, things like the American Hospital Association, who are, I mean, I think uh, right now they are just uh, lying, um, but just because of cost, because it will be costly for them to uh, to admit that it's airborne, and then they have to provide other masks that are more costly than the than the other ones. Mm -hmm. um, and um, the problem there is that if you don't say it's airborne, then you don't then you don't make more N95s. You know, like just like we we didn't have vaccines, but we got our act together and we invested a lot of effort and we've made very good vaccines. The same can be done for masks. And there is a lot of new designs of masks that are much better than the N95s and. But there hasn't been, you know, they, they haven't invoked like the Defense Production Act or, or invested, the federal government hasn't invested uh, um, money on, on, on better masks and on distributing them, giving them to people or anything like that, like they have with vaccines, you know. So it's like a, it's like a chicken and an egg. By not admitting it, you don't solve the problem either. Right. Well, and, and you mentioned like the cost of masks. You'd think that the 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 input cost uh, of of getting the masks is is just going to pay off massively too. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the, oh sorry. Oh I no, mean, no the, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, when you think about the masks, like like um, you know the the N95 masks were developed around 1990, and basically it was it was a good invention. Basically, you, in in a mask, you need three things. A mask is a filter, so that the function of the mask is that the air that you inhale as you exhale doesn't uh, it basically passes through this through this cloth, right? And when it goes through there, most of the aerosols that may be coming in or coming out get stuck to the cloth, and then you don't breathe them in, or other people don't breathe in the ones you exhale. That's the function of the mask is to be a good filter. 
And then it, it, it needs two more things, basically. It needs to be breathable. You know, if it's a very, a very thick piece of cloth that you cannot breathe through, then that's not practical. And it needs to be to seal to your face tightly so that there are no gaps. If there are gaps, it's much easier for the air to go through the gap than to go through the filter. No, and even a gap that's one or two percent of the area of the mask, half of the air that you breathe goes through, goes through the gap because it's just much easier for the air to flow there, right? So you need three things: filtration, uh, breathability, and fit to your face, right? Now the N95 was chosen because it's a material that's a very good filter and it's breathable. And then we make it we make it fit to the face, but but it doesn't do it very well. And then there is this whole cottage industry in hospitals of people who, who make sure the N95 fit well to people, all the fit testing and all that, right? And there is all these arguments that we cannot give N95 to people because they are not fit tested. Now, some, some scientists would say that. But, um, but there has been, I mean, they already existed, but there is new developments of these this other masks that are called elastomerics, in which you take... A filter, which is like an N95, which is breathable and is a good filter, but then with a piece of plastic, you mount it on a on a bit of silicone, the thickness of my finger that goes all around your face, and then you press that bit of silicone against your face, and that's a much much better seal. Mm. So you so you eliminate this problem of the gaps that um, that is so so problematic, right? And and these masks, for example, the one I have, which is one called Envo mask, that I don't have any relationship with them, but I I like it. So I think they, they sell them for like $70. Now you think, let's say we, we make 300 million of these. And uh, how much is this? So this is a few billion dollars. You know, and you could give one extraordinarily good mask to every American for a few billion dollars. How many billions of dollars? I mean, we're, we're talking trillions of dollars of damage to the economy. And all, yeah. these, all these packages of, you know, we keep having a stimulus packages of hundreds of billions and a trillion, and and yet this has not been done. People are still wearing a t-shirt, a bandana, and things things that have efficiencies of 10% and 20%. And then people get infected despite wearing masks, and then there is this resistance to masks. Oh, they don't really work, or or and and also we don't explain why they are needed. You know, so anyway, this creates a lot of problems. Yeah, and, and explain that part of with you know if, if everybody was because I think there there's hasn't been a lot of work trying to to combat the the idea that that's gone into people's minds that you know even if you, you let's say everybody is wearing you know a, a fairly poor mask much less a good mask like how effective it is if everybody's collectively wearing a mask and how that scales up because it, you know that. Uh, this is a, a an idea that I've I've seen spread since you know, for a year now. Is that you know you take whatever really low end mask, like one of those really cheap cloth masks or something, and they'll they'll work whatever maybe thirty percent or something, and then somebody will say, well, masks just work thirty percent. So what's what's the point? So even if if you had a whole bunch of people wearing uh, masks that have you know fifty percent uh, uh, effectiveness, you know. Explain how that uh, scales up. Yeah, so I mean, there's the concept. Yeah, like um, if you say uh, it works, uh, the mask I'm wearing, let's say I'm infected, and the mask I'm wearing is 20% effective, 
So 20% of the viruses I say stay on the mask and 80% goes through the air. And then I'm sharing a room with someone who also has a poor mask that's also 20% affected. But still, out of that 80%, you know, he 20% of that gets filtered by his mask. So he's only breathing in 60% of the virus that he or she would be breathing in if neither of us was wearing a mask. So it's kind of, the, it, it compounds uh, from person to person. And there is a chance that person doesn't get infected. And then if that person doesn't get infected, he or she doesn't go around and infect more people in turn. So, so it's kind of a, a compound interest situation mm-hmm. in which in which masks uh, help slow the propagation of the pandemic and, and we see that in in uh, in the studies that the, that they do work in that way but that said you know since we're going to the effort and the annoyance of having to wear this thing in a face why not wear it's not that difficult to you know as I was saying with a few billion dollars every American could have a mask that's 90 or 95 percent effective and then then you would really you know, and we wouldn't have to wear them for very long because yeah. we would, the, the virus would really go away. You know, so it's, it's just shocking that um, the, the kinds of things that, that that we've been wasting money on with disinfecting everything and and then things that are obvious have not been done. Yeah, and, and you you went into great detail about how so much of this is, is rooted from certain people who are will just not give up their their dogmatic position but how much of it do you think is is from more so politicians and governments that they they don't want to admit that for the past year they've had so much bogus policy and, and bogus messaging that they just want to they, they they don't want to admit how wrong they are and and now the idea is that they, they really have their fingers crossed that the vaccine's just going to get rid of it within the next few weeks mm-hmm. In, in the U.S., um, I mean, other countries have vaccinated more slowly for the most part. But, I mean, I think, I mean, well, I mean, the politicians are are complicated and they, they have a lot of faults. But I think the fundamental fault is with the, this historical error of the public health and infectious diseases field. I think because at the end, they are the ones that control the CDC. And if they had told, if WHO and CDC had told the politicians, look, this is airborne as it is, and we have to do these things, then the politicians wouldn't have been able to resist. And I don't think, I mean, my impression is not, I don't know of any case, and I've talked to a lot of people, you know, that you had CDC the head of CDC saying, oh, it's airborne, and the Trump administration or the Biden administration saying, no, 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 you cannot say that. I don't have any indication that that was has been going on. I understand what has been going on is that CDC and WHO have said, no, 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 this is not airborne. And the governments have kind of followed, uh, you know, they they always, politicians always, you know, get um, involved in all these recommendations as, as we hear, but but that's not where the fundamental fault lies. And I think there is an attempt to save face, uh, in particular at WHO. But I think it's again, it's, it's, it's those specific high high ranking people there, and not the traditional politicians. Right. Interesting. Now you you mentioned like how they they've that these people have jettisoned the, the precautionary principle, but. Like, doesn't that even seem more foolish, uh, like with with what's been been happening the last year in 
say Taiwan and Japan and South Korea with with you know their rigorous mask use and you know clearly how much that is playing an effect or maybe is is there even like uh, uh, any any hard data that's even come out of those those countries the past year for how much that's worked because it it just seems bizarre to to ignore all that with with with, with what's what's going on there on top of it all yeah i mean but but um the, the problem is that these problems are very complex, right? I mean, a whole field of science can be confused for 100 years because really how viruses are transmitted, you know, when uh, or, um, a pathogen goes from one person to another and then the, pers- the next person gets sick days later, it's very difficult to determine exactly how that happened, right? And um, when you think about the experiences in Taiwan or New Zealand or South Korea, they were doing many things. They were, yeah, they were having more masking, but they were also much more aggressive and much more effective in contact tracing. And also, if you know, if you have been exposed to someone, you were forcibly quarantined. And they will, like in South Korea, they put you in a hotel, but they also bring you food and they pay for the hotel. And you know, and um, you know, so so they have been doing so many things that are different that you cannot just say, well, it's the mask or is this or that thing. And there has been, I mean, the, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, was at some point in an interview saying that early in the pandemic, she was shocked that most countries that she was talking to were not considering the idea of trying to eliminate the virus, of, of go after the virus until they had zero cases, right? That most countries had accepted that they were just going to live with the virus. And I think that's the fundamental error, you know, that in the US and in Europe and in most other places. And and the countries that have been determined to eliminate the virus, like like Australia, like New Zealand, like South Korea, have been by, by the most part successful, you know, or Vietnam, countries that have much less resources than the U.S., but they just ha- they have had the determination, you know, to use and the leadership that that they were going to eliminate the virus, you know. So, I mean, it's, and when you think at that level, I mean, urban transmission is only one piece of the puzzle, and limited transmission is only one piece of the of the puzzle or, or, you know, understanding how it's transmitted. Because if you, if you are very aggressive about tracing the contacts and isolating all the contacts and quarantining all the sick people, whatever, then they cannot transmit through, through any mechanism, through the surfaces or the aerosols or anything. Right. 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 Um, uh, so now back to, to something you, you, you were, you were touching on earlier and people in this field, how many, uh, how how big of a, a field is this currently with, with people studying uh, airborne transmission? As it would seem to to some, it's you know a a whatever a, a not a worthwhile endeavor or taboo even. Like, is is this a, a growing is is this field growing at least? Um, I mean, it has exploded during the pandemic. I mean, I think half of the aerosol scientists I know have been doing some work on this field. But before the pandemic, it was very small. And, you know, I knew it existed and I knew a couple of people that, that had been working on it and, and were good. And, and um, But they, what they say is they were battling a perception that this was something very unlikely. And, and one very prominent colleague told me that multiple times they would submit a proposal to study airborne transmission of this disease, of that disease. And then, you know, you have this anonymous peer review and that peer review will come back and they would say, oh, it's not worth wasting money on this proposal because we know that airborne transmission doesn't happen. 
So then basically there were very few people who were studying this. I mean, a few dozens, dozens in the world. And I've been working with, with many of them this over, over this past year, but it was a very small field for that reason. And it had been given very little attention because there was just this huge skepticism that, um, that it was important. And there is diseases like the flu, and it had really already been demonstrated that that is transmitted by airborne transmission and several colds and rhinovirus and the other coronaviruses and, and SARS, the original SARS and, and MERS, they all go through the air, just like, just like COVID. But this had been denied and basically had not been accepted. And even though there are publications that are quite convincing, this has just been denied. And, and um, you know, so, so then this virus arrived and, and it, you know, and, and we, it got us into this mess because basically the, the knowledge that existed had not been accepted at the highest levels. So you said so around a year and a half ago, there only would have been dozens. Yeah, dozens of, of experts in, in the world, I would say. Yeah. Oh wow! And, and so, you know, what what happened in in January, February of last year? You know, at, at what point did did you decide to really put all your attention towards this? Well, you know, so as, I, as I say, I was I work on aerosols, and then I. I'm originally from Spain, and I have some friends from northern Italy from the time I was living in Spain. And I start to see how, you know, this virus is really not under control, and how can it be spreading so quickly if it's not going through the air? This thing about the surfaces and the droplets didn't make a lot of sense to me. But, you know, I didn't really know. But then I, one day, I think it was in February, I talked to my friend in northern Italy, who tells me how they're basically in the hospital just having to let people die. Like, if you are, you are above 60 then they don't even try to, to keep you alive because, because there is so many patients. And, and then I realized that this is arriving in Madrid, that uh, uh, in Spain, that this, the same thing is going to happen and that the same thing is going to happen in the U.S., just maybe more slowly. So I start kind of starting to, to research the subject and I get in touch with uh, people I have known for decades who have been some of these experts that were working on urban transmission. And they say, yeah, yeah, no, we, we believe that this virus is being transmitted this way, but you know they explained to me this historical bias that really the WHO and those types and CDC they are you know that sad they think this is so extremely unlikely, and um, which which I was very perplexed just like you were saying earlier that you were perplexed at my explanation I was very perplexed at the explanation like why you know it doesn't make any sense, but um, you know the, we we keep working on it and we, as I said we talked to them on April third. And at the time, we were already investigating the, the choir outbreak. And um, and I, I talked to the choir directly. I was the person in our team who who interfaced with the choir. And, and they really were extraordinarily helpful. And it was immediately obvious once they gave us the information about what they were doing, that the only explanation for that case in which one person infected 52 was transmission through the air, you know, because they knew that the virus was in Seattle. This was, you know, 50 miles outside of Seattle. And they knew that the virus was in Seattle, but there were no cases in their community. But they were already being very careful about the surfaces because there was so much emphasis. And, and once they told us what they did, it was impossible they got infected through the surfaces. And they didn't take much time. They only talked to each other for about 10 minutes. And during that time, each person would talk to two or three people. And the person they index case, the person that later is known to be infected, didn't talk to anybody because that person wasn't feeling very well. 
So, so it's impossible that that this would go through the droplets, you know, um, even if there was another person that we don't know that was infected, that kind of thing. So, so it was obvious that it was airborne transmission, you know, and we explained it in great detail. We have published um, a scientific article about it, but but um, this gets denied, you know. Then there's, there's that report in July, as I was saying from WHO, where they allude to our choir case, but they they say, oh, this this doesn't this doesn't prove anything, and they they clearly haven't haven't paid attention, and and I mean they come they come from such a deep prejudice that to them is, this is just unthinkable. It must be some error that we have that we have made. So with, with so many people that are are uh, following suit with 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 what you're doing. Uh, do, do you think that you're you're starting to get a little more traction, and that you, you might be able to to you know push the CDC or the WHO a lot more, or maybe even you know in a, in a year or two, if hopefully things ta- uh, you know slow down with, with COVID by then, and and uh, there's some reflection on what happened that you know, that, that there might be something done to uh, dispel the, this this you know, dogmatism that you were discussing. Um, I hope it doesn't take a year, but uh, I mean, scientifically, it's clear what's going on is, is what's called a paradigm shift. Just like when, you know, um, Galileo said um, that the, and Copernicus, that the, the earth goes around the sun and not the other way around, or when Einstein came up with relativity and they said it's not really Newton classical mechanics, but really the, the universe is, has these other physics. And, and each one of these paradigm shifts, when there is, there is some very established way of, of seeing the world and science, and then there is something that's revolutionary and that's very different from what's accepted. None of these ideas were accepted the next day. You know, Galileo was imprisoned and Einstein was, was um, basically accused of, of, of being completely wrong. And there was this book of 100 physicists against Einstein where they explain all the reasons why they think he's wrong. So, I mean, we're in a situation like that, and there is um, there's a book by Thomas Kuhn called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, where he explains kind of these dynamics, and and it's basically the, like the stages of grief, and they say at some point, you know, the people who are clinging to the to the failing theory start to come up with adaptations, so to, to, so to they can keep uh, that theory going. So the way that has played out WHO and CDC is now these droplets uh, that they believe do the infection, when they need to, they behave like aerosols, you know, but only when they need to, you know, so they, mm. so for the, for the choir and whatever, or for the, yeah, there were, there were some, they, they are the droplets, they are the droplets that they, that they think, but somehow they were behaving like, like aerosols. Like there was this, this um, high level scientist in Australia, which is in the main panel that advises the government. And they had a case in which basically a security guard who was in the corridor of a quarantine hotel got infected because the air that was coming under the door um, had the virus from in a, in a room where, where someone was infected and then also maybe when, when the door was open. But there was, that person never had any surface contact or any direct face-to-face contact with infected people. And he was saying, well, these are the droplets that are there in the room. And then when the door is open, they all come out. <laughs> and it's like, he's describing a behavior you know, the, the droplets they, they talk about fall to the ground. You know, they don't stay floating in the air. If they stay floating on the air, those are aerosols. So I call them the, the magical droplets. You know, they are, they're, <laughs> extending, they're extending the droplets into magical droplets that 
don't follow the laws of physics, but they they can keep their fantasy going. You know that this is uh, that this is how diseases are transmitted, right? So anyway, so it, it's failing, and and I think more and more people um, have been uh, coming into our side. I mean, I think there was also a sociological issue in the sense that um, you know, as I said, there are not very many medical experts who were researching this or who were, you know, open-minded. So then a lot of people that have been helping this year, like myself, you know, I'm, I'm a kind of a chemist, an engineer, and then they view us as outsiders that don't know, you know, we don't know about health, we are not uh, from the health professions, and why are we even talking about this? I mean, WHO said said very much this, basically dismissed us, the 239 scientists, as basically we were not from, we didn't have the right training to to even talk about this. And there was one of the committee members at WHO said that we were all chemists, engineers, and owners of ventilation companies. I don't know where he got that from, but implying we had some economic interest or something, and that we basically were unqu- we were unqualified to talk about this. So there has been a lot of resistance because, you know, the people in the health fields, so the people they know and trust, who are the higher ups in the health institutions, saying that we are crazy, and then a bunch of outsiders who have a very different training saying, no, 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 this is airborne. So there has been, this has slowed things down a lot. And, but I think it's changing. And I think more and more people in the health professions are seeing, um, you know, are, are, are now on our side. But um, I mean, it's still going to take a little bit. I, you know, before, so before we send that letter to WHO on July 6th, you know, after we started investigating the choir case, I basically emailed every journalist I knew saying, you know, this disease is airborne and then we have this choir case that we're saying. And basically, almost nobody even replied. And some people replied and said, oh, this WHO says this is crazy. And and, and they didn't, nobody would interview us. Or, or there was, I mean, it was very, very muted. Once that letter um, uh, appeared and got a lot of coverage and stuff, I mean, for, for months, I was doing five interviews a day and always thinking, oh, we're finally going to convince them and then I can, I can relax. And it hasn't really, it's gone very slowly because it's really so entrenched. Um, and I, I really can't predict what's going to happen. I do think in the U.S., I mean, we, we wrote a letter to the Biden administration a year ago with, with um, a number of top scientists, but they haven't even replied. And what we, we've heard informally is that they, they're completely focused on eliminating the disease with vaccines, and they they're not going to reply to us. I mean, like they, I mean, these are still people who don't believe that airborne transmission is important. They think maybe plays a minor component, even though it's the main way the virus is transmitted, and and they realize that they can eliminate the the disease through through the vaccines, you know, with these very aggressive programs. So then they maybe they don't have to deal with it. Um, in other countries, it's going to be more difficult because you have these more transmissible variants. And in Europe, for example, they don't have enough vaccines, and and they may have to contend with another wave. And in in other countries as well, so so the issue is going to stay alive um, for a bit. But uh, I do not expect that there will be, you know, that next week or next month, WHO is going to say, oh, is going to accept the reality that this virus is mostly airborne. I I think that's going to take years. Have you seen anybody affiliated with whatever public health organization with, with any particular country, maybe somewhere in Europe or South America or, or somewhere that have, you know, started to, to entertain the notion 
that 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 taking seriously airborne transmission is is, is the route to go, unlike the U.S. Um, I mean, the U.S. has um, they have. You know they have like with the, this school opening, they have now some new rules on, on ventilation, and and they have been talking about how you should wear two masks, and and all these things. So they've been saying kind of like WHO, they've been telling you what you have to do, and the only reason those things would do anything is because of urban transmission. But they don't say that why. They just say you have you need to wear two masks or you, or you need to ventilate, but they don't say why. So they kind of have been acknowledging it, and, and many countries have been saying that. And WHO came up a couple of weeks ago with some revised ventilation guidelines that, that have been written by my colleagues of the of this group of people that wrote the letter and everything, and um, and which, which are very good. But in terms of talking more openly, I mean, what, what's missing is explaining to people this analogy of the smoke. Because otherwise, you know, people don't understand why are we wearing masks and do masks work and why ventilation and how and whatever. Everything is very confusing because it is not explained why things have to be done. Christian Drosten, who's um, a virologist and one of the top advisors of Angela Merkel in Germany. So he's been saying for a year, it's like, we have to explain it to people. If we explain it to people, then people can understand why we're asking them to do this or to do that or to wear a mask. And when, they, when in doubt, they can think about what they are, what they are trying to do with that measure, and they can, um, you know, they can adapt to their specific situation. But we have not been doing that. Um, in terms of, I mean, I would say just yesterday, actually, Argentina has been the country that I think has been the clearest, and they came out with a with a program in which they were acknowledging aerosol transmission as being important, and they were saying it more clearly, and. Um, I mean, I, I I played at least a small role there because um, I gave a talk last year, and I think I um, I talked to the scientists there, and I think this arrived at the right time. There were the, basically the the doctors and the public health people that work for the government were already very suspicious because they had seen a number of outbreaks that really made them think this was airborne, but they were confused because WHO was saying no, no this is not airborne. And then when, when we explain to them, you know, that this is this historical confusion, of course it's airborne. I think that has um, people at high levels of government have been able to to change things. And it's not perfect, but but I think it's of the countries I have seen that I'm aware of, of how, they, how I explain things is the one that's, that's ahead, you know. Yeah. Has there been anybody like maybe outside of public health organizations or like your, your, your circle of, of, of scientists and, and academics that have uh, started to um, try to persuade people or, or get the message out of COVID being airborne, like, like any sort of other like notable public figure that has gone on board. Cause sometimes, you know, you know, that that's a good way for, for some message to get traction is you just get, you know, you know, somebody prolific to start uh, pushing that that message out. Has has anything like that occurred? Um, like some Hollywood celebrity or, or Bill Gates or something like that. Yeah, like maybe um, not, maybe not like a yeah celebrity, but yeah, maybe maybe somebody like Bill Gates would be a, a better example. Like not necessarily a yeah some actor yeah, um, or something. Um, you know, not not that I can think of. I mean, I think we've we've gotten a lot of support, certainly from a lot of scientists. 
and from a lot of healthcare workers. I mean, as I was saying, there is this kind of resistance, but it's in a very narrow segment of um, of the health professions. It's in public health and infectious disease control, and even there we've made a lot of inroads. But uh, but then the the regular doctors that don't work in these fields of disease transmission and who are exposed to the virus in hospitals, many of them have been really supportive. And there was there's this particular doctor in Canada. Lisa Yanatona, and she posted a message in Twitter, and she said, you know, really <laughs> listen to me. We should listen to these aerosol scientists, because the number of hours that we study aerosols in medical school is zero, and we just really don't know, and, we, and these people are trying to help. You know, so there's been many, many healthcare workers like that that, that we've been working with, but in terms of someone with the prominence of, uh, of Bill Gates or someone like that, I don't think we have managed to... Um, to convince a person like that, I, you know, I don't know any any such people, and it's not always very easy to to reach them. Yeah, yeah you mentioned Lisa Yanatone. Yeah, she's been great. Um, uh, you, you you mentioned um uh, the 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 smoke factor and 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 you know people uh, not really having having too much of an understanding uh, as to what's going on, and you know that 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 ties in with. Uh, all the confusion and everything. Um, uh, what what would you say to to just the 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 average person who still thinks that, like, let's say, let's say, like those plexiglass barriers or something like that, or or like face shields? I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of some other things that 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 these are having some sort of big impact, and and is, and if you have this, you know, physical barrier, well, part of the way because you know. Like whenever there's a plexiglass thing, it's usually actually relatively quite small in comparison with with the the rest of the area in which they're in. Um, like like what what would you say to to, to somebody to to you know tr- um, to sort of uh, put into perspective like how little importance that these things might might have? I mean, so these are good examples of of waste of effort. Of, I mean, in some cases of, of, of what we call theater, pandemic theater of, of making it look, doing things that are visible, like disinfecting surfaces or putting plexiglass barriers, um, but that, that they don't do anything, you know, and they give you a false sense of security. So, I mean, what I would say is that you have to think, and this is why I believe the analogy of the smoke is so important, like, if you're in a room and someone lights a cigarette and there is plexiglass barriers around the table, something like that, that's not going to do anything. I mean, it may do something for a couple of minutes, but the smoke is going to get around. You know, so the plexiglass barriers don't do anything except like in, when in a cashier situation of the supermarket, if you have two people that are talking face to face and you put a plexiglass barrier in the middle, that's useful because you break basically, and if you think the garlic smell, the the invisible smoke that's leaving one person is going to be hit the plexiglass barrier and it's going to make it more difficult that the other person inhales it immediately, right? But when when you see these lateral barriers in, in offices or things like that, this is useless. And in fact, it's worse than useless because it makes ventilation more difficult. It creates dead zones. So it can let the virus accumulate and then it, it doesn't go outside with ventilation so easily. The same with face shields. I mean, it's, if you imagine you put a face shield, but you don't wear a mask, and then uh, and then someone starts smoking in the room you're in, you think you're not going to breathe in that smoke? It's absurd. It's going to go around 
your face shield, right? I mean, a face shield is used for if someone you're in a hospital and someone coughs on your face, and then it breaks those. In those cases, you do have those big droplets. It's the only situation where they matter. And then, you know, this spit is stopped by the face shield. So they have their function. But you still see many countries that that's all they wear. You know, they, they're wearing this because they, they still believe in this this dogma of the droplets. Where Where is that exactly? Where where they, uh, face shields have, are that primary? Um, well, you see, it, um, I've been following in Twitter. So this is still, for example, in the Netherlands, um, and in some places in Sweden, there there is some, you know, it's, it's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm from Southern Europe, from Spain, so we always look up at Northern Europe at countries as, as if they were more advanced. But in this case, I mean, Sweden and the Netherlands in particular have been at the forefront of denying science and really doing everything wrong with respect to to airborne transmission. And I don't know exactly. I mean, I think it's that their public health people and maybe their governments are, are especially strong deniers of, of the science and, and especially strongly bound to this dogma of the droplets. But um, yeah, there, there's, uh, that hasn't been good. Yeah, no, I, I did a whole episode just on the Netherlands and then another whole episode just on Sweden and it's not good. That's yeah, for sure. Okay. That, 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 that's for sure. Uh, and one thing you said, I actually, I, I didn't know at all. Like I, I, know generally how you know limited uh like plexiglass barriers and, and how you described it is how i've been describing it personally and in, in my personal life to to people i'm interacting with for quite some time is that it's theater and it's all presentation and that's about it but you mentioned like in, in an office space it, it it making it worse can, can you elaborate on that more uh, yeah because basically if you have um i mean at the end if, if the if you have um, a virus that comes out of people like smoke, what you want to do, you know, the best thing is to do it outdoors because outdoors is going to rise. There is much more movement of air and it's going to go away and there's less chances than the people you're with will breathe it in. Why we see that transmission is much, much more likely indoors, um, you know, there are numbers people say 20 times or 100 times more likely is because Indoors, we're in a box, and that box traps the air, and then it makes that the air that someone exhales will have many more chances of inhaling it again, right? So that's, and, and then when you think about what ventilation is and why, you know, uh, we all recommend ventilation, is that means that the air that's trapped indoors goes outside, and clean air comes from outdoors that doesn't have the virus. Now, if you create barriers, you create pockets of air where the air is not effectively channeled away. So the air kind of, this bubble kind of stay in between these tall barriers. And then the vi that virus that, if you didn't have the barriers may go outside, may kind of be trapped. And then you have more chances of breathing it in, you know? So so really they, I mean, yeah, they, they can even make things worse. And, and we've been advocating for uh, businesses and schools to remove them. I mean, if they have wasted all this money, they should remove them. In our university, the University of Colorado, so Professor Shelley Miller and myself started advising them about um, some of these control measures, and they had already bought a lot of plexiglass because they thought it was useful. And we told them, no, 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 you shouldn't install it except in this cashier situation. So then they installed it in those places, but then they had a, this mountain of plexiglass that they didn't know what to do with. So 
I told my wife that works in the arts department, and then they have donated a bunch of plexiglass, and they are doing art with it, and that's a much better use of it. Interesting. Yeah, I'd never really thought about that before. But yeah, say you have you know, uh, an office space or a room or whatever, that's at least kind of, you know, ventilation's okay. Yeah, if you have all these barriers set up, it, it's going to disrupt the, the flow of air. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I guess on that that note, what what is uh what should be some some new things uh, being brought into to buildings as far as as uh, air ventilation is concerned and, and and air filtration? You know, what, what kind of changes should be made? I, I guess particularly in in schools because that that's a uh, been quite a hot topic for a while. Is you know, a lot of places have had schools shut down for a year, and you know this. You, you know, there, there there's a lot of uh, effects from having the schools closed so long that are, you know, really really bad, and you know it needs to be addressed. So like like primarily in schools because there's still a lot of office spaces where people are, you know, working from home still, and you know it's it's less than favorable in certain situations, but it's manageable. But with schools, it's extremely different like what what kind of ventilation and filtration should be brought in as well as apparently you know completely doing away with these plexiglass shields and you know putting them in the recycling bin um well so the the most important thing that needs to be done is um to admit that the schools are not inherently safe i mean that has been a that has been disinformation that has been put forward by science, some scientists and governments just saying, you know, schools are inherently safe. Children don't transmit and schools are safe. That's false. There is there's just plenty of studies that show that there is a lot of outbreaks in schools. Kids, young kids may transmit less, but they spend a lot of hours sharing the air and and you know and it's hard to have them wear masks. So so there is transmission in the schools and we have to accept that it's a place that that there is, that is not inherently safe, but it can be made a lot safer. You know, now the, the decision of, I mean, I agree with what you said, it, it's very important for kids to, for schools to be open and it's important for society so the parents can work and all these reasons. So that the end is a societal decision of weighing the, the risks and the benefits, you know. But I believe if we're going to open the schools when there is still a lot of cases, then we have to do everything we can to minimize transmission. And then we have to take, uh, you know, all these measures. And the most important one, I mean, is, is ventilation, right? Um, so ventilation has is has been historically poor, and in a lot of buildings, in the school buildings, and a lot of buildings in general, is poor. Why is ventilation poor? Because we've been these schools have been built in a century in which it was believed that it was impossible to get infected through the air, so ventilation was not important, right? In 1944, William Wells, who was the person who was trying to demonstrate that tuberculosis was transmitted through the air, and he eventually was successful uh, after his death in 1960, and he finally got accepted that tuberculosis was transmitted through the air, and that was the first disease that was accepted. So William Wells in 1944, where he was working towards this, he wrote an article in, in Science, and then he said, you know, as a society, we have put a huge amount of effort and resources in making sure we don't get infected through the water that we drink. And we have all these, uh, all these plants and all these disinfection procedures and all these pipes and all these things that we do that 
that do cost a lot of resources, but we have done it and we have been immensely successful in, in preventing infection through the water. And we've done the same through food. You know, we have made sure that the food we eat doesn't have pathogens. And when a pathogen is detected, we have a recall and we have all these inspections and stuff. And we have been very successful. But for the air, you know, it's not that hard. All we need to do is ventilation and some other things. But we have just not done it at all because, because it was believed that these systems just don't go through the air. So this wasn't worth the effort. Even though the effort is not larger than, let's say, providing drinking water that doesn't have pathogens, right? So, so the problem is that we start in a bad situation. Many schools, especially the older ones, don't have good ventilation, and the and and the kids in the school are breathing each other's air too much, and the teachers and everything, right? And then they can bring the the virus home to their parents, you know. So, um, the first thing that we've been advocating for is for measuring carbon dioxide. So we humans exhale carbon dioxide, the food that we eat, you know, we basically, our, our metabolism burns it to carbon dioxide, and then we exhale it. So if you if you are outdoors, you have about 400 parts per million of carbon dioxide, and that is what increases slowly, a few parts per million per year, and that causes climate change. But, you know, from the point of view of the pandemic, it's, it's changing very slowly, right? So you have about 400. And if you have an indoor space where nobody's there, it will have also 400. But now if people go in, because our, our exhaled breath has about 40,000 parts per million of carbon dioxide, this carbon dioxide is going to accumulate, you know. And for example, um, if you have uh, 4,000 parts per million in, in a space, that means 10% of the air that you're breathing, someone else has already breathed it. It has already been inside someone else's lungs. And that's a risky situation. If you're breathing in a lot of the exhaled breath from others, you may inhale the virus someone infected has exhaled, right? So then measuring carbon dioxide is very useful and it's the only thing we can do. It's the only thing that's feasible, that's available, that's low cost to try to protect ourselves from the presence of the virus in indoor spaces. And, and you can get these CO2 meters that, I mean, there's, there's different kinds and the only one that works is the ones that use infrared technologies called NDIR. And they cost between $100 and $200, something like that. And, and with this, you can really protect yourself much better and identify the spaces that, that really are, are in need of ventilation and how much do you need to open the windows. And, and what our colleagues find is that you don't need to open the windows completely. You can open maybe three windows, seven inches in a, in a classroom, and that's enough. And even though the day is very cold, you can have enough ventilation and still be in the classroom and be safe. So we, we've been advocating that this should be done massively. In fact, by law, this is this was already a law before the pandemic in both Taiwan and South Korea, mm. two countries that have done better, just for, for reasons of disease transmission, but also indoor air quality, and because we're smarter at lower CO2. When when CO2 gets very high, gets to 1,000, 2,000 parts per million, we make decisions work, and the students make uh, exams, uh, make more mistakes and all that. You know, so, so you can think if we use ventilators at our schools and our companies and everything, we would be smarter as a country. And but we have known this for two decades and basically done next to nothing. You know, while these other countries, like I was mentioning, like Taiwan, have have moved um, more aggressively. But now in the pandemic, we should really um, measure CO2 everywhere and and display it publicly. What we are like like it's in Taiwan, we we advocate that there should be anywhere where we share the air whether it be a school, a shop, an office, um, 
there should be a display of the CO2 level. And if it gets too high, then we know we have to get out of there or the, the business or the school knows that they have to do something. They have to open the windows more or things like that. So anyway, so ventilation is, is really important um, and is generally the cheapest way to do it. But there are places because maybe it's a basement or, um, you know, some other, uh, or there is just the windows are too small or, or you cannot open the windows because it's too noisy or too smoky outside or whatever. Or so too then cold. Have, or too cold or too, well, I mean, well, it depends. You can still, as I said, if it's too cold or too warm, you can still open the windows a little bit and it's often enough. But but let's say you can't for whatever combination of reasons, right? So then um, then you what you need to do is to filter the air. What's, what's a filter? Well, it's the same as a mask. A mask is a filter that we wear, and, and you know, there is these pumps that are our lungs and our diaphragm that moves the air through the mask, you know, and that's what makes the air go through the mask. So, but you can have also like a box that you plug into the wall, and there is a filter, which is just like a large mask, and then there is a fan, and the fan takes air from the room and passes it through the filter. And if there is virus in the room, it will stay in the filter. And then you don't breathe it in, right? And I have a colleague in Spain who's been they've been putting these filters in the school, and then they analyze the filters and they find that when there was some infected people in the classroom, they find the virus in the filter, mm-hmm. meaning the filter is working, you know. Um, and you have a couple of you can do this with a fan, just with a box fan and a, a filter like the ones we put on furnaces, and this will cost fifty dollars. And again. It's crazy that this hasn't been done in every classroom, that we don't have one of these in every classroom because $50 per classroom is something we can afford, you know. Or you can buy these commercial HEPA filters, they're called, and they are more expensive, but they also tend to work well, although there is a lot of, you know, there's a lot of variety. So filtration works very well if you, if you cannot ventilate enough. Or if you have, just like if you have a forced air system in your house or in a business, all of those systems have a filter to protect the equipment and to remove some of the dust from the air. And normally that filter can be upgraded. What uh, what you find is that almost everywhere people use the cheapest filter you can get, which is what's called the grade 7, MERF 7. And most systems can tolerate grade 13, which is a much, much better filter, but it's still not so thick that the, you know, the, the fan on your house can still push the air through that filter. And that really helps a lot in removing the viruses from the air. So that should also be done. And it doesn't have much cost. I mean, we're talking. So in my house, a filter costs twenty dollars for the cheap one and thirty dollars for the expensive one. So, so it's not really that much of a difference. Now, um, if you you know, if filtration is not is not practical for whatever reason, like sometimes in a in a prison or in a um, let's say in a the emergency room waiting area, things like that. You can also use what's called ultraviolet disinfection. So there is these lamps that produce ultraviolet light, and we know they kill pathogens. That's how we finally demonstrated um, we finally demonstrated that tuberculosis goes through the air is using these UV lights, and, uh, and we know they work against this virus. But, but it's something that's more expensive and more complex, and it has to really be installed and designed by professionals and maintained. So I'd say that's that's not for everybody, but that's useful. You know. And then uh, the problem is that, you know, with the pandemic, there's all kinds of people selling all kinds of things that are useless or dangerous, but they say they say that they clean the air. I mean, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen oh, yeah. that, that are selling things that, uh, and, and lots of the school districts that are buying this, wasting money 
on things that are endangering their students. So they say systems that clean the air, that supposedly clean the air with ions and plasmas, mm. photocatalysis and uh, hydroxyls and hydrogen peroxide. You know, I'm a chemist and, and I can tell you that the last thing you want to do is to try to kill the virus with chemistry because the same chemical reactions that can hurt the virus can hurt you and, right. can, produce, and can, can produce toxins out of the compounds that are present in indoor air. So it's the last thing you want to do. But, but these things are being sold like hotcakes. And then there is also um, things like spraying disinfectants in, into the air, like either ozone or um, hypochlorous acid, which is like a type of bleach or chlorine dioxide, different disinfectants that are being put into the air. And that's, this is extremely dangerous and, and should be forbidden, in my opinion, but again, it's being sold like hotcakes. Like I know in, in many dental clinics, they basically spray bleach into the air in between clients, which is it's absurd because... Bleach? That's no, basically, hypochlorous acid, which is... Oh, I mean, yeah. yeah, uh, yeah. We, bleach is sodium hypochlorite, so when it evaporates, it's hypochlorous acid. So, so they're spraying bleach into the air and used to, to disinfect the room. But this, this is absurd because when you need the disinfection is when the, when the person is there, not in between the patients. And, uh, and you could instead have a HEPA filter right there, or this is basically they are like a vacuum cleaner next to the mouth of the, of the person you're working on. And that's so much better. I mean, it doesn't have any, any of these effects. But I mean, it's all kind of because people don't really know what they're fighting. Again, CDC doesn't really tell us what we're trying to fight against. And, um, and these dangerous air cleaners are not regulated, but, you know, it's just an explosion of this kind of thing. So, so you have to be careful because you may, you may spend a lot of money thinking that you're protecting yourself. And in fact, you're making things worse. So with, with these people that are, that are selling these garbage products, are these just a bunch of charlatans who see an opportunity to make a quick buck off of uh, people who are trying really hard on the fly to come up with something and are in a, some sort of state of desperation? Um, I mean, many of these air cleaners have been um, available for decades. And the problem is that the whole, it's kind of like the supplements industry that is, um, you know, these uh, supplements that you will take and whatever. And there was this this doctor that was, I read that she was telling the story that, that she gets all these can- cancer patients that, that come to her uh, clinic and they have all these liver issues and whatever. And, they, and then she realizes that they're taking a million supplements. And then she tells them, no, you have to stop all the supplements immediately. And then the patients are shocked because they think all these supplements are natural and they couldn't think that. But, you know, but yet there is this supplements industry that managed to keep itself unregulated. So I would compare it with this situation. It's like um, there has not been a regulation. So a lot of these products, I mean, some of them we have evidence that are harmful. Others, we just don't have evidence that are harmful, but we don't have evidence that they are not because nobody is forcing them to do the studies. You know, the studies can be done, but these people are just based on marketing and, and they are just very dismissive of, of us, the scientists who, who are telling them, you know, you really need to study the whether you're making byproducts. And, and they are trying to sell as much as they can during the pandemic. I mean, there, and there is more serious actors who are, who are, um, who who are trying to help, I think, and, and and some of them are starting to do tests and things like that. And, and there are people that are more on the charlatan end of things. Oh, okay, I see. Uh, but back to the 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 the, the uh, ultraviolet light system and, and the the filter and the uh, and the filters. Um, 
I, I guess one thing right away a lot of people would, would think when they hear that the ultraviolet light system to, to kill the pathogens that would pop into their head would be, well, is this harmful to me? And, uh, and then with, with, with the filters, these filter systems, did, uh, are they all pretty much good to go? Or is there any sort of uh, trials that, that need to be done? Or does, you know, is, is just the, the, the science and theory behind all of it just, you know, solid enough that, you know, you can just implement them now and it's good to go? Um, so f first in the filters, I mean, there is, um, um, the technique works and shouldn't have any, any bad effects, right? Because it's just literally a piece of material that will trap the virus and then the virus is going to lose infectivity there. And then, you know, that's, that, that works. Now, like anything, you know, you can take any good idea and do it poorly. And for example, there is, um, a colleague, Marwa Satari, um, who's uh, an independent professional, and he's a member of the ASHRAE board, the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. And um, she's been doing a, a table or a, a graph illustrating all the different commercial HEPA filters. And you see there is a huge variation there is in terms of the price to performance ratio and how noisy they are. And you can, you can spend less money for a superior product or you can spend more money for a worst product that on top of it is very noisy. And um, I mean, recently, just last week, uh, Anthony Fauci, Dr. Fauci, he, he said that he had bought for himself a HEPA filter and he was endorsing this. But then she put it in this graph and it's basically Fauci had bought about the worst and most expensive and worst performing filter anyone could find, you know. Oh, dear. And, and this is, you know, so this is a problem. And, you know, so we were saying, you know, it would be useful if medical professionals and engineers work together because because there is, you know, there is a lot of variety. And again, the government could come in and put some standards and say, you know, your, your, your filter needs to, needs to meet the standards. And that would be really helpful. But right now, again, it's the Wild West. You can, I mean, I can make a box in my office and sell it and say this is a filter. And, and um, you know, as long as people are willing to buy it, there is no, there is no regulation, you know. Um, Okay, uh, and then on on the uh, the oh, you were asking the yeah. ultraviolet light. Yeah. Um, so the the way the ultraviolet light is the traditional one. So this is not the same ultraviolet light that in a tanning salon. It's actually a it's a harder kind of ultraviolet that um, that would be very damaging um, if it um, if it was on your skin. It's a two hundred and fifty four nanometers. Well, there's a wavelength and. And that will be hurtful. But the way it's applied is, is normally one or two ways. Either you put it in the ceiling, but it has a cover. So basically it irradiates the air around the ceiling, but it doesn't irradiate people. Or you can put it in the in the ducts, in the air conditioning ducts. And as the air is going through the duct, it's exposed to this UV light. The first system is better and works better. You just put it in the ceiling and then you, you cover it so that the light doesn't impact people directly. So th this works very well. I mean, we're studying how much chemistry it leads to. It is a little bit, but we we don't think it's too bad for that for the particular system. Uh, but but again, it has to be designed properly. If if you design or you install it improperly, and then you allow this UV light to shine onto people, that's very dangerous. This light can burn your skin and your eyes, and you know. So that you have to. That's again what I said. You don't want to do that everywhere. That's not to have it in every house. That's to have it in places where you can have it 
installed professionally. There is a new a new type of systems that um, instead of 254 nanometers, they use light, a different type of UV light with 222 nanometers with these light emitting diodes. And the advantage of that, that light is that it cannot penetrate your skin. So it can only penetrate a few microns, which those cells are dead on your skin anyway or in your eyes. So basically the, the advantage is they can probably be shown directly on people. And then those would be very efficient in terms of uh, disinfecting the air because they can be everywhere, basically. You can go into an airport or a shop and they can be disinfecting the air. And if you exhale some virus, very quickly, all the air in the, in the room may be disinfected in this way. But uh, I mean, it has a couple of problems. I mean, I think that's maybe could be the start of the next pandemic, but um, they are not, they are not really available. They're very expensive. And still this, I guess people are not totally convinced about um, the safety issues and, and they just were not quite ready for, for massive deployment during, during the pandemic. But, but it's something that's promising um, looking towards the future. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's something that you could implement down the road, preparing for, for something to come. Because, yeah, we're, we're still you know, fumbling around with you know, masks and, and, and simple filters, much less these, these devices. So it seems mm-hmm. like a, a, a stretch to, to really push hard for now. Um, I, I want to shift to to outdoor transmission because and and alluding to some of the things we said earlier, like like some people are, it's just how how much uh, you know bad information has gone out and uh, you know contradicting information and and just mass confusion. So you'll you'll have people indoors that that, you know, think that wearing, you know, any mask is fine and it doesn't fit very well. And that, you know, the, the, the plexiglass barrier at the cashier is doing something, but yet, you know, they're, they're really adamant about wearing a mask outside when they're walking in the park, even if there's like nobody really around. Um, so like, what, 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 what do you have to say about uh, outdoor transmission and uh, what we know that's going on there? Well, so we know that there is there is much less transmission outdoors than indoors, but there is transmission and there is a bunch of cases, and they're all basically the same thing, as far as I know, which is people talking closely. You know, you're talking to someone close, and especially if you're not wearing a mask. And you can imagine, again, you understand this very well with the smoke analogy. If you're talking to a smoker outdoors, but you are two feet from that smoker, you know, the, that you may end up breathing a lot of that smoke. So that's a situation in which people get infected. But once you are outdoors with distance and with a mask, then it's almost impossible to get infected if, you, if you're wearing a good mask. You know? so, so it will be very safe. And we've been saying one of the things that should be done um, everywhere is every activity that can be done outdoors, be it school or a, or a work meeting or meeting with your family or whatever, should be done outdoors. Now, out, outdoors means outdoors. You know? <laughs> this has been understood in some places during the winter as you could as long as you were on the sidewalk, you could build this completely closed tent or igloo or something, mm. and then that was outdoors. And that is even worse than indoors, because many of those were, because it's cold in New York or whatever, or here in Boulder, and they were very poorly ventilated, much worse than, than the restaurant that they were, uh, the, the indoors of the restaurant they were belonging to. So I think those are kind of virus incubators. Oh, those, like those, 
Yeah, I don't think there's any around where I am I, up, up um, here in, in in Western Canada. But yeah, like the, those those pods or whatever that they would yeah, have yeah, yeah, yeah. Out, outside at a restaurant. Yeah, those look ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it has been very widespread. And again, it's because it hasn't been explained. You know, it's like there was just this. There are these all these statements from the public opinion is that outdoors is safer. So then people run with that. Outdoors is safer. So then as long as you're in the sidewalk, even though you are in a pod where all the air is trapped because you are outdoors, that must be safer. You know, and that's, that's just absurd. But anyway, so then outdoors, if you, so I was saying, you know, you're walking with someone or something, you are close to someone, even if you try to keep some distance, I would still wear a mask. Now, if you're in the middle of a field or you're in the middle of a park and there is nobody around, um, really, you don't need a mask, I would say. You know, they are, you know, the chances that the virus is going to come from, is, they're infinitesimal, I would say. I mean, you know, sometimes like when I go walking around town, most of the time we are not near anybody. But then, you know, now and then there is a runner, there is someone that crosses by. So I still wear like some some kind of mask just because it makes me feel calmer or whatever. But um, and also kind of to set an example, I guess, that, that uh, um, but but I don't think it's so important. I mean, the, the problem um, that, I mean, when we talk to people in, in public health who are kind of um, advising some governance something, they they really ask us to not say that masks are not needed outdoors and, and not say that too loud. Because basically what they find is that people get very confused. You know, it's very, and if, if the message gets out or if the government says that outdoors you don't need a mask, then people interpret any situation outdoors. And then they step out the door and they remove the mask, no matter how many people are, no matter whether they can keep the density, mm. the distance or whatever. So, the, so then kind of, what they've been saying, some, some governments were reaching out to us, is like, just, just say you need a mask outdoors. And what we do, what that government was doing is like, we already told the police that if there is someone without a mask and they are, they are away from other people or they are in, in a park, or they, they're not going to say anything to those people. You know, they already know. But, but then the fact that you have a simple rule that you always have to wear a mask in public makes it much easier for people to understand and to enforce. And they do have a point However, I also noticed that this creates a lot of resistance, you know, because then there's a lot of people who think, well, this rightly that this requirement to wear a mask when you are in the middle of a field or a park, there's nobody around. It's absurd, you know, and then then they start, well, if they don't trust that thing that's being asked for them from public health, then they start not to trust anything, you know, and again, since since it's not being explained clearly why we need to do all these things. You know, and, and one of them is absurd, then you start to suspect maybe all of them are absurd, you know, and, and that diminishes the compliance with, with these public health rules. Yeah, gotcha. So, so it'd be, so yeah, walking through a park, you know, probably don't need a mask, but yeah, if you're walking down a, a busy street in Manhattan, it's probably, probably not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's what I would say. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it also depends, you know, if you're in a windy day, you know, that the, the exhalation from people are being dispersed very quickly, then it's very safe. If you're outdoors, but you are in a very narrow alley in Manhattan where there is very little circulation of air and there's a lot of people, that's kind of a semi-indoor situation. You know, it's like a, it's something intermediate between indoor and outdoor. So you kind of have to, and again, that's it's something like everything I'm telling you, once you think about the smoke, it's clear. Do you yeah. just imagine that whatever situation you are doing, people are exhaling smoke? Is that a dangerous situation for inhaling smoke or not? Right. And then everything I'm telling you, you can tell, you can learn yourself. You know? 
Right. So if they if if there was effort applied to get that uh, bit of messaging out, the concept of of smoke, and then just some elaboration, people can then circumstantially discriminate from you know what situation they're in to another, you know what they should be doing, and they can make their their own decisions accordingly. Like, well, you know, I'm in you know this this busy corridor. It's technically outside, but maybe a mask is wise or you know, I'm just going through a, a walk through this this field or this park, you know, don't really need a mask. I could just do that instead of just having these rigid laws and and uh, that, that, that don't necessarily make sense. Yeah, and, and another situation where, where this plays a role is, for example, a common situation is someone is inside, the, ta- the driver is inside a taxi or an Uber and they are not wearing their mask. Or some person is inside the shop and there is nobody else than the than the person who works there, so then they are not wearing their mask. And then someone comes in mm. and they into the taxi or the shop and then they put the mask on. Right. And they are making a huge error, you know, because they should wear the mask at all times because if they're infected, they're putting a lot of virus in the air. And then now the, the customer comes in and is breathing air that has a lot of virus. And if they had been wearing a mask the whole time, there would be much less virus in the air. But But because the emphasis has been on these droplets that don't basically they come out of you and then the moment you put the mask they stop coming out and you're safe this um there is this cacophony you know in which again we're wearing masks all the time but transmission doesn't go down so well and it's because we're doing things poorly yeah so like and as as masking right now is still you know it needs tons of improvement would you would you recommend that people um, like for the for the, the the present start you know doing their their shopping at a grocery store or whatever you know as soon as possible then like right as soon as it opens before people have gone in there and are able to you know, uh, uh, you know fill the, the the volume of the air in, in the building with with uh, virus. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a good idea. I mean, I think there is a better idea, which is if if, um, if there is places that offer um, online shopping. I mean, this is what we've been doing the whole pandemic: is we just um, shop in supermarkets and we order online, and then we call when we arrive and they bring it outside, and then we take it into the car, and that's that's how we shop. You don't always get the best uh, hair or the best lettuce, but you know we we take uh, <laughs> right. We, we we take that as a as a small as a small penalty a small for, for being yeah. safe for you. Yeah. So you know, but but if if that's not offer where you are, then I would definitely go first thing in the morning. I mean, it's, it's worse, you know. So it is if you have a, some very large supermarket that has a very high volume of air and not a lot of people and has good ventilation, that's one thing. But if you go into a small shop that um, that maybe doesn't have a lot of ventilation, that's a different thing, you know. So this, there's also the, the relative risk of different venues. Got it. And then, and then on on the the smoke part. Um, so let's say you're like just just trying to conjure up that imagery. Then it, it'd probably be good to tell somebody if they're like biking outside or jogging. Like it, it, you know, if you have somebody else jogging a ways ahead of you or something, like try to you know, not be so consistent in, in following them and, and, and keep quite a considerable amount of distance there to not get in their, you know, their, 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 their path. Yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Because you, when, you, when you are jogging or you're doing heavy exercise, 
you are exhaling a lot more of these aerosols. It's just your, the heavy breathing leads to more aerosolization of your respiratory fluid, right? So you can imagine that someone who's running is like, it's not just smoking a cigarette, smoking a cigar and <laughs> making use more, more smoke. So the last thing you want to do, and that smoke, it will be staying behind them, you know? So you don't want to be following very closely, whether in a bike or in a or running or something, so that, that you are, you have a high chance of inhaling um, the air that they are exhaling, especially if either or both of you are not wearing masks. You want to, you want to keep more of a distance. Yes. And again, I mean, I guess it will also depend, you know, again, if it's, if it's a very windy day, it probably doesn't matter. But if it's a more, a more quiet day, that the, the air is more quiet, and you can see sometimes, the, you know, the exhalation, kind of the, the condensation of their breath, and that's staying behind them, and, that's, and you're running into that very quickly, I would keep more of a distance. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Um... I think it's probably a good time that we should uh, wrap this up. Uh, before we call it a day, do you have anything else that, that you'd like to, to say to the audience with, with somebody in, in, in the public uh, might need to know uh, to you know, look after themselves? You know, what, is there anything else that somebody might need to do in their personal life to um, try to mitigate risk in accordance with uh, airborne transmission that they, they should keep in mind? Um, I mean, I think we've, we've covered it pretty thoroughly, but the, just to repeat, is the idea that people exhale an invisible smoke and you don't want to breathe it. And you think about that in every situation and that will give you the clue about what you have to do. So wearing a well-fit mask of good quality in, in all the situations when you share the air and also in a place like if you are going to have guests, you should start wearing the mask an hour before the guests show up, not put it in when, when the people show up, right? And um, all these ideas about the ventilation and measuring CO2 and, and the filters, like all of those things work very well, you know, and they, and they are not that expensive. And also like doing things outdoors, you know, it's like the, and it's, it's the most frustrating thing is like to be, to realize that these measures work very well, and in the places where people do ventilate, they do not have outbreaks, yet um, that they are not being done, you know, or not being done in, in the scale that they should. So, so I would say just, just think from that angle, and there is a lot of information we have, for example, these frequently asked questions on the internet that we we put together that um, among 12, 12 scientists, and, and we basically explain all these things I've been saying, and and uh, you can find links and things like that. But um, yeah, that, that people should protect themselves, of course, and, and then people should get the vaccine as soon as, as they can. And hopefully we can all be... Definitely. Uh, leave COVID behind uh, as, as a nightmare period in our lives. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's also a very important message. Get vaccinated people as soon as you can. Um, oh, well, you, you mentioned those, those FAQs. Oh, where, where can... Uh, somebody hunt that down. Um, so it's just a, a hopefully easy to remember address. So it's, it's tinyurl.com slash FAQ, FAQs, FAQs dash aerosol. So again, tinyurl.com slash FAQs dot aerosol. And if you go there, it will take you to this document. Okay, cool. And, and, uh, is there uh, anything in particular that you'd like to 
safer for people to keep track of you? Is is Twitter your your main outlet? Yeah, I mean, I you know I have to say I'm a, I'm of a generation that I, I really wasn't into social media before the pandemic, but that's something else that I and especially when the journalists were not listening to us and we were trying to reach out to people and and warn people about urban transmission, I started using Twitter. And I found found it actually very effective. So I would say, and and I, I use it to talk to other scientists, and it's very useful to people in my field or people in different fields, as well as to try to communicate to the public. And um, some of my my Twitter address is uh, my initials, which are JLJ, and then Colorado, the state. So just JLJ Colorado, and there there I am. Yeah, I keep track of them. You you've got a lot of great stuff going out on Twitter and in, in both languages. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to this episode. The music you hear on this show is from the Jeff Lapp Trio out of Montreal. Find them at jefflapp.com. Shout out to Tara for doing the graphics for COVID on air. A huge thanks to my editor, Jeff, at Bean Co. Studios in Regina, Saskatchewan. Please visit ncoronavirus.org for more information on ECV. Click on Join Us. Through that, you can volunteer with ECV. And you can subscribe to our newsletter, which is full of great information, shot straight to your inbox from our delightful newsletter editor, Tracy. Also, please check out the blog at ECV. And hats off to Scott, our impeccable blog editor. You can find ECV on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter at ncovid19. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Farton at M-R-F-A-R-D-E-N. Until next time.